0: Together, the first fifteen verses of John six. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him, because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about five thousand. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks... He distributed to those who were seated, likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, He said to His disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which He had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take Him by force to make Him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Our Father, we agree with the psalmist who said it is in your word that we see light, and your word teaches us and encourages us and sanctifies us. So we pray, like he prayed, that you would establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for you. Help us to honor your word by submissive obedience to it, to see ourselves in this passage, and we pray, O Spirit of God, that you would make your word come alive to us today, that we might behold your grace, your compassion, and your words in it. Help us to hear only the voice of our God in the text of your word, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Have you ever been reading through the Old Testament and come across a story or something in the Old Testament where you say to yourself, how is it that they could possibly respond like that? What? How foolish could they be to behave like that in the midst of all of those blessings? To see, for instance, the children of Israel and to say to yourself, okay, God has just parted the Red Sea and brought them across on dry ground, and now they're complaining about water. Or he has provided for them manna in the wilderness, bread from heaven, falling every day sufficiently, enough for all of their needs, and they get that day after day after day, and now they are complaining about supernatural, miraculous bread from heaven. Or God has promised them a land, and He has promised them a land flowing with milk and with honey and His blessings in the covenant, and they're worried about walled cities. Or to say God has saved their soul, and He has promised them nothing but that which is good for Him for them, and now they complain about the weather. No, hold on, that's us. Sorry, I was getting my complainers confused there for just a second. That's what we do, isn't it? We do that all the time. We look at the Old Testament saints, we look at the Old Testament folks and the stories, and we fail to see ourselves in that, and we wonder, how could they do that? And yet, really, if history were written of us, if we were to read of ourselves in the Scripture, or if we were the subjects of the dialogue and the narrative, people a hundred or a thousand years from now would read that and say, how could they be so foolish to do that? I find myself seeing a lot of, I'm going to say myself, but I know you too, in John chapter 6, in this episode of the feeding of the 5,000 and the disciples and their response to Jesus' demand that they find something to feed this large group of people. So we are looking now at the fourth of the seven signs that John gives in his gospel. It is the feeding of the 5,000. Before we dive into the passage, I want to remind you of something that I told you last week. This is, the, again, the only miracle that Jesus that is recorded of Jesus in all four gospels. This is the only re- miracle that Jesus did that is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospels. The only one, other than the resurrection of Christ, which we would consider that a miracle, and we would consider that a sign, but I mean pre-crucifixion miracle. This is the only one recorded in all four gospels. That tells us something, not only of the significance of this miracle in the mind of Matthew, Mark, or minds of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but also in the plan and intention of the Spirit of God. There is a reason why the Spirit of God recorded this miracle four times. And it's unique and significant in all four of the Gospel accounts. And I think that there's a specific reason the Spirit of God did this. One, now I'm not trying to read the mind of the Spirit, but this is what I observe in the Gospels. For one, this is the most public miracle that Jesus did. This is before 5,000 people. There was another feeding of a multitude recorded in the Synoptic Gospels of 4,000. That was smaller than this one. This one is even greater than or even more public than his resurrection. Jesus appeared after his resurrection to as many as 500 at one time and to his disciples and apostles who were chosen beforehand for him to see them. But of all of that Jesus did, of all the miracles and supernatural feats, this one was the most public. This miracle is also, I believe, a watershed event in the life of Jesus. A watershed event. What I mean by watershed is everything prior to this is going a certain direction. Everything after this seems to be going a totally different direction. This event, the feeding of the 5,000, and the dialogue and discourse that follows it seems to be a pivotal point in the life and ministry of Jesus. When chapter 6 begins, people are following him and chasing him in droves. When chapter 6 ends, people are leaving him in droves. And he is left with only the twelve to whom he says, are you going to leave too? He has gone from a group of followers that numbered in the thousands to a group of followers that didn't even number in the hundreds, but just twelve. What is it that happened? What is it that he said that drove so many people away? John chapter 6 answers that question. And the feeding of the 5,000 is that miracle. And everything that surrounds it helps explain to us how it is that Though they came for His works, they saw His signs, they came because they saw His works, they left when they heard His words. They wanted His works, they wanted the miracles, but they didn't want the teaching that went along with it. And when Jesus began to teach and say some very strong things and lay down His demands for discipleship, the people said, no thanks. And so they left in droves. So they're coming to Him by the thousands at the beginning of chapter 6. They are leaving Him by the thousands at the end of chapter 6 what happens in the middle it's the feeding of the 5,000 and his explanation of that miracle that follows it in John chapter 6 so it's a watershed event and I've kind of hung my thoughts at least on four things that I observe in the passage and in this miracle first we will notice the place that the miracle takes place in verse one. Second, we will look at the people the people of the miracle in verses 2 through 4 then we will notice the problem that is raised in verses 5 through 7 And then we will save this for next week. We will notice the provision in verses 8 through 14. So the place, the people, the problem, and then the provision. And that will help us sort of structure the text as we work our way through it. Let's dive in and take a look at the place. Verse 1, chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee or Tiberias. Now I mentioned last week, there is a gap of time depending on which feast you think is mentioned in chapter 5, verse 1. There is a gap of time, remember, between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. I suggested that it could be anywhere between 6 months and 18 months, depending on which feast is mentioned in one. i I'm of the opinion, again, that the feast mentioned in chapter 5, verse 1 is a Passover feast. That means we have roughly 12 months between chapters 5 and chapter 6. I mentioned that last week, but what I didn't do last week, because we didn't have the time, is I didn't fill in for you all of the events that took place in that year that John just skips over. Remember, it is not the point of the Gospel writers to record everything that happened in the life of Jesus. Each Gospel writer has a specific thing that he's he's geared toward and aiming at in the writing of his Gospel. And so each Gospel writer picks and chooses the sayings, the sermons, the miracles that help to build the point that he is trying to make. John does the same thing, so he jumps over an entire year of Jesus' life that the other synoptics cover. So here are the things that were going on in during that year. And I mentioned this because there are two particular things that we read in Mark chapter six, Mark six, two things that sort of set the stage for the feeding of the five thousand and this event in John six. Chapter five revolved around what type of a controversy? Do you remember Sabbath controversy? Because Jesus healed the man at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. Following that event in John chapter 5, there were two other Sabbath controversies, and you may remember these. Jesus and his disciples began to pluck grain on the Sabbath. That's mentioned in Mark 12. That was a Sabbath controversy. There was another Sabbath controversy that immediately followed the events in John 5, and that was Jesus healing the man with the withered hand, also mentioned in Matthew chapter 12. Also during that one year period of time between chapter 5 and 6, Jesus healed the multitudes, mentioned in Mark 3. Christ selected the twelve apostles. Out of all of those who followed him, he, he numbered and chose the twelve. That's why we read at the end of chapter six, Jesus saying, I chose you twelve and one of you is a devil. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter five through seven takes place in that one year period of time. The healing of the centurion servant in Matthew eight. The widow's son is restored to life in Luke seven. John the Baptist is arrested and thrown into prison. In in Matthew chapter 11, Luke chapter 7, and then he sends the people, his disciples, to inquire of Jesus. Are you the one or should we we be waiting for another? Jesus encountered the penitent woman of Luke chapter 7. Jesus did a second tour of the region of Galilee in Luke 8. John the Baptist is beheaded, Mark 6. There is ministry in Capernaum. He calms the storm in Matthew 8. He heals the demoniac in Matthew 8. He heals the woman and Jerry, the woman with the issue of blood and Jairus's daughter in Matthew 9 and Mark 5. He heals the two blind men and the demoniac in Mark chapter 9. Sorry, Matthew chapter 9. There is the final rejection of Jesus in the city of Nazareth, Matthew 13. Christ begins a third tour over the region of Galilee. He sends the twelve out with power to heal the sick and to raise the dead and to cast out demons and to perform signs and to preach repentance. Herod Antipas is agitated and Jesus calls him that fox. And then the twelve return from the mission and John the Baptist is beheaded. All of that happened in that one year period of time. Now there are two events in that list of things that I just gave you. There are two events that are of significance to John chapter 6. And they are these two events the disciples come back having said been sent out by Christ the disciples arrive back and begin to report to Jesus all of the things that they have done so earlier Jesus had sent out the 12 with specific instructions you go into a city don't bring two cloaks bring only one live off of what people give you if they reject you shake the dust off of the off of your feet and they had done that they had gone on that tour and while they were doing that Jesus was busy in Capernaum with his own ministry and his own miracles and doing his own preaching and teaching the disciples returned back And at that very same time, Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been beheaded. John was his cousin. John was a prophet. John was the one who had testified of Christ and pointed people to Christ. John the Baptist was the one who had um, who who had baptized Jesus. You remember that? Now I think it was possible that was one of the disciples who returned that mentioned that they had heard that John the Baptist had died. So two things happened at the basically at the same time. The disciples returned. Jesus has been busy. They have been busy. And that Jesus has heard that his cousin, John the Baptist, prophet of God, has been beheaded by Herod Antipas. Now all of that sets the stage for John 6. Because the disciples have been busy, Jesus has been busy, and now he has received some bad news. So he says to his disciples, Mark chapter 6, we need to go away to a secluded place. Jesus wanted to be by himself. So John chapter 1, verse 1, after these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the sea of Galilee. Almost as if John expects us to have read Mark 6 and Matthew 14 and Luke 9, which are the other three places that this miracle is mentioned. John just mentions that Jesus went from the western coast of the Sea of Galilee to the eastern coast of the Sea of Galilee. He basically got in a boat, the other synoptics tell us, because the crowds were pressing in, and Jesus, wanting to be alone with His disciples, sailed off for a secluded place. Best thing to do is to just cross across the lake to a deserted place where there are no people because the crowds were on the western side. So he goes from the western side of the Sea of Galilee across basically the northern tip of the Sea of Galilee across to the northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee next to a town there, Bethsaida, I think. Bethsaida Julius was the name of the small town there. It's kind of off in the distance. But the synoptics, Matthew and Mark, record that even though Jesus was sailing across the north end of the Sea of Galilee, the crowds followed him by foot, went around the top of the sea, so that by the time Jesus got to the other side, there were people who were there, and then once he got out of the boat, Jesus didn't get out of the boat, or sorry, Jesus didn't stay in the boat and just push off into the middle of the sea, which you and I probably would have done if we wanted to be alone. Sail across and there's a bunch of people waiting for us. Push off again and head south. Go somewhere. But Jesus didn't do that. He saw the multitudes, and Luke and Matthew and Mark record that he felt compassion for them because they were like a sheep, like sheep without a shepherd. And so he got out of the boat with his disciples. His plans for quiet and solitude were interrupted by the masses. And Jesus got out of the boat, and then the crowds began to come to him. And that's what sets the stage for uh, John chapter 6. So John records that he went across the Sea of Galilee, but then he calls it, or Tiberias, because that was another name. Sea of Galilee actually had a number of different names. It was called the Sea of Chinneroth, the Sea of Chinnereth, the Lake Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, and the Sea of Tiberias. That's a lot of names that it's referred to in Scripture. Tiberias, because Herod Antipas, who was the one who had beheaded John the Baptist in about 20 A.D. had founded a city on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he named it after the Emperor Tiberius. And so it became known as the Sea of Tiberius, because a major city named Tiberius was on the western shore. So it's the Sea of Galilee, it's the Sea of Tiberius. That is the stage for the miracle. Matthew and Luke both mentioned that it was a desolate place that they were at on the eastern shore, away from people, out sort of off in the wilderness. And now we look at the people of the miracle. That's the place. Now look at the people, beginning in verse 2. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. And how did they follow him? They didn't get into a boat. Matthew and Mark said they went around the lake uh, on shore. They followed him by foot. And so they went all along the shore. They crossed the, the Jordan River, which empties into the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And they uh, crossed there and followed him over to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And they were waiting for him when he got there. Some of them were. And then the other synoptics record that after he got out of the boat, he felt compassion for the people. He wanted to heal them because they were bringing the sick to him. And so he felt the compassion, began to heal them. And Luke says in Luke 9, he was teaching them things concerning the kingdom of God. So he was teaching the people and he was healing the people. And he never did get the solitude with the disciples that he wanted to get. So John chapter three, or sorry, John chapter six, verse three says, Then Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. That was his way of sort of breaking away from the crowd. There was a slope there, a mountain, and John calls it the mountain, maybe because he has a specific one in mind that Jesus went to with His disciples often. He went to the mountain, and there He sat down with His disciples. Now, the crowd was there, and John says in verse 2, that they were coming to Him because they saw the what? The signs. Now see, again and again in the Gospel of John, we have seen that the crowds, when they followed Jesus, came, not because they wanted deliverance from their sin, and not because they wanted to trust him as Lord and Christ, but because they saw the signs John chapter two twenty three through twenty five said that while he was in Jerusalem he was doing miracles, and many believed on him then. But then what does John say? But Jesus did not entrust himself to them, he uses the same word for believe, they entrusted themselves to him because they saw his signs. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he knew in their heart that they were coming for the signs. They wanted bread. They wanted healing. They were fine with a Messiah who would heal their sick and raise their dead and and heal the cripples and make the lame to walk and the blind to see. But the one thing that they did not want was a Messiah who would offer them forgiveness for and deliverance from their sins. They wanted to be delivered from the physical ailments, but they didn't want to be delivered from their sins. Why? Because they love their sins. Right? They love darkness. Men love darkness. That's why John chapter 6 is a watershed moment, a watershed event. Because Jesus begins to present himself not just as the Messiah who will feed their hungry stomachs, but as the Messiah who will deliver them from their sin, and that they do not want. So the people are coming to him for the signs. That is a shallow, unbelieving, unfaithful faith. That is a faith that does not save. said it before. That is a faith that trusts him for the benefits and does not want to receive Him for who He truly is. That is an unbelieving belief. There is a faith that saves, and there is a faith that does not save. The faith of the multitudes was the faith that does not save. Give us the miracles. That's what they want, the signs. That's why they came by the crowds. But there is a faith that says, miracle or no miracle, I will entrust myself to you, and take you at your word, because I want you. Not the miracles, but you. I want deliverance from my sin. I want forgiveness for my sin. I want a new heart. I want new affections. I want to belong to you because you are precious to me. Real saving faith says that to Christ, and I will obey you. That's saving faith. Unbelieving faith says, show us the signs. Show us the signs. Now verse 4 is more than just an incidental marker for time. Verse 4 says, now the Passover of the feast of the Jews was near. What's interesting about John, and I'm not going to develop this, I'm just going to mention this, and you can study this out on your own. Most of the Gospel of John can be outlined around the feast that John mentions. He mentions one in chapter 2, verse 13, which sort of begins his ministry, and of course you have the, the woman at the, uh, sorry, the cleansing of the temple and the water turned into wine in chapter 2. Then he mentions a feast in chapter 5, a feast in chapter 6, a feast in chapter 8 and 7, a feast in chapter 11. Most of the events, in fact, all of the events of John fit nicely around John's mention of the feast. He mentions a feast in order to give us sort of a chronological point to hang these events on. And then he unfolds all of these things that happened around this feast. And so he, here you see it in chapter 6, verse 4, the mention of the feast. But listen, that tells us not just when the event or when this miracle occurred, but it gives us the background and the thinking in the minds of the people that was going on when the miracle happened. Now, that would also maybe explain, verse 4, would also explain why the crowds were coming to him. If it is near the Passover, then you would have all of these pilgrims from the northern regions of the city, of the nation of Israel, which was up in Galilee, which is where we're at by the Sea of Galilee, up in the north, north of Samaria, north of Judea. You would have all of those people from the surrounding regions in the north gathering together, making their pilgrimage on the way down to Jerusalem. Many of them would be carrying, in fact, all of them would be bringing with them one of two things. Either the sacrificial Passover lamb that they would have offered in the temple, on the day of the Passover, or they would be bringing with them all of the money that would be required to purchase a lamb in the temple. Do you remember all of the money changers and the selling of doves and the oxen and all that stuff for the for the sacrifices? They would be bringing either the money to purchase the lamb, or they would be bringing with them the lamb. And they would be moving in massive crowds headed down toward Jerusalem. It was probably wandering through Galilee that they heard of Jesus, saw Jesus, and began to sort of glom on and realize, here's a miracle worker. Let's stop and we'll see the miracles. And they had the miracles done. They were following for that reason. It was near the Passover. Now, if you're a Jew, and it's spring, and you're getting ready to, you're getting ready to celebrate the Passover, there are three sort of trains of thought going on in your head. Now, I'm, I'm giving you this so you can put yourself in the mindset of a Jew, And then I'm going to show you how John chapter 6 sort of unfolds around this mindset. Three things would be happening in your brain. First, you would be thinking of God's miraculous deliverance of your nation from its bondage and slavery to the nation of Egypt at the Passover time. You remember that? The Exodus, the ten plagues, the miracles, the signs, Moses leading them through the desert, leading them out across the Red Sea. God's miraculous deliverance, taking His nation and destroying a Uh, uh, an enslaving and occupying force that that, uh, they were oppressed by. So God's miraculous deliverance of His people. Second, they would be remembering at that time of year God's miraculous provision for His people. Of the manna that God provided once He led them out of Egypt into the wilderness. And how He sustained His people. And provided everything that they need and fed their stomachs every single day. All of that manna faithfully, consistently for 40 years in wanderings in the desert. And third, they would be thinking of the bringing of the sacrificial lamb to the temple, the shedding of that lamb's blood, and then they would later take that animal and they would roast its flesh and eat its flesh as part of the Passover celebration. Those three things, miraculous deliverance, miraculous provision, and then third, the eating of the flesh of the Passover lamb. Now look at John chapter 6, verse 14. This is after, I want you to see how all three of these things are part of the events going on in John 6. John 6 verse 14, after the feeding of the 5,000, the people saw the sign which he had performed. They said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force and make him king. So what's going on in their minds? they're wandering toward Jerusalem and they're thinking God's miraculous deliverance from this enslaving power and this people's bondage to a foreign nation and God delivered us from that. And then they see Jesus and what do they think? Deliverer. We'll make him king. This is our opportunity because if he can fabricate food out of nothing, he can fabricate weapons out of nothing. If he can provide for us like this, he can provide a a massive army to overthrow Rome. And they wanted nothing more. I'll tell you this, they wanted nothing more than to be free of Roman oppression. Nothing more. The Romans were in their land. The Romans were taxing them. The Romans were oppressing them. The Romans were basically an enslaving force for the nation of Israel, on the nation of Israel, and they wanted deliverance. And when they saw Jesus do what he did, they thought to themselves, "We'll make him king. This is our king. He will deliver us." Now look on down at John chapter six, verse thirty. Verse thirty, Jesus says in verse twenty-nine, "This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent." So they said to him, "What then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread out of heaven." To eat. So what are they thinking of? God's miraculous division uh, deliverance and God's miraculous provision. He gave us manna to eat out of heaven. So show us that same type of miraculous provision. And the third thing that they would be thinking of in their minds was the slaying of the Passover lamb, the shedding of its blood, and eating its flesh. And that is what I think is behind Jesus' statement in verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. His allusion to sacrifice his own sacrifice of what his flesh just like the lambs that likely these people were thinking of ready to purchase or bringing with them verse 52 then the jews began to argue with one another saying how can this man give his life his flesh for us to eat so jesus said to them truly truly i say to you unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in yourselves well see that only makes sense if you understand they're on their way down to jerusalem to eat the flesh of the what The Passover lamb. That's the background behind that statement. Unless you eat my flesh, you cannot have life in yourself. And he's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about them appropriating his own sacrifice of his flesh in the same way that the Israelites appropriated the sacrifice of the flesh of the Passover lamb for their sins. That's what's behind verses 51 and 52. So what are they thinking of? Miraculous deliverance? Let's make him king. Miraculous provision? Give us manna. And the eating of the flesh of the Passover lamb. And so Jesus says to them, unless you do... To me, what you are doing with that lamb, you can have no life apart from me. So that's the people. Now let's look at the look take a look at the pro problem that is raised, beginning in verse five. I gotta go back. Verse five Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Now hold on just a second. The people have come across the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. They have gathered there. Jesus gets out of the boat, heals their sick, teaches them about the kingdom of God, goes up on a mountain to slip away with his disciples. When somebody slips away from, he slipped away with his disciples up onto the mountain, it's only a matter of time before the people say, where did Jesus go? Why, why, did, the, why did the sensation sort of die down? And they notice that he's up on the mountain, and they begin to come to him, and they followed him up onto the mountain, seeking more signs. But Jesus, and this is the the marvelous part of the compassion of our Lord, Jesus, even knowing that they were only coming to Him for the signs, felt compassion on them. Knowing their shallow faith, that it was not a true believing faith, knowing that in their heart of hearts they did not believe upon Him for whom He was, He still felt compassion on them. He still loved them enough to teach them and to heal their sick, even though He knew that these people did not love Him for who they were. That's the compassion of Christ. So the crowds begin to come to him. The Synoptic Gospels say that the disciples came to Jesus and said to Jesus, send the crowds away so that they may find a place for lodging and for food because we are in a desolate place. So send the crowd away from us so that they can go out into the villages and the surrounding regions, find some place to get food and lodging. Because Mark and Luke both say that it was getting late. In fact, it was much late in the evening. So the sun is setting, it's getting late, and the disciples realize this crowd is here, they're hungry, we haven't eaten all day long. It's, if, if much more time goes on, they're not going to be able to make it back to a place of lodging before dark, and they need to get out of here so that they can find something to eat. And that's when Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. Matthew, I think it's Matthew and Mark that record that. You give them something to eat. Now Jesus knew they didn't have provision to give them something to eat. And John says specifically that he said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? Matthew, Mark, and Luke only mention that this interaction, this conversation happened with the disciples. But John specifically mentions that he singled out Philip and said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now all kinds of ink has been spilled trying to explain why Jesus singled out Philip instead of the other disciples. Surely all of the disciples needed this lesson, right? So why just Philip? Some have said because Philip was sort of slow to learn. uh, Like we see in John 14 where Philip says to Jesus, Show us the Father and it's enough for us. So Philip is kind of the hands-on, slow to learn. He really needed the lesson. Maybe that's true, but when I think of slow to learn, I think of Peter, not Philip. So I don't know that that would necessarily be the the reason. I'm not trying to diss Peter because he's he's one of my he, he's one of the, my 12 favorite apostles. He's uh, so Peter maybe needed the lesson. Philip maybe he needed the lesson, maybe not. Some people say that Philip lived in the region there, which he did. He lived in Bethsaida, very near to there. And he was from Capernaum. And if anybody of the disciples would have known where to find bread to buy for these people to eat, would have been Philip. Maybe Jesus is asking Philip, hey, where can we get some bread? I don't think that that's it because the question, we're told later, is not intended to elicit information from Philip as if Jesus himself was unaware of any place around there that they could buy bread. The fact of the matter is there was no place nearby that they could buy bread. That's why the disciples said, send them away. Get them out of here. They have to go off into the surrounding regions. They were in a desolate place. There were no bread shops Anywhere around. So he says, maybe it's because Philip was the one standing next to him. Some have suggested that. It could be that. Most likely, I think that this is said to Philip, but Jesus has in mind a lesson to all of the disciples. Jesus is not eliciting information from Philip. I don't think he's singling out Philip because he's the cold, calculating, emotionless person who just is able to run the numbers quickly to figure out what's necessary. In fact, verse 6 says he said this to Philip because he was testing him, because Jesus knew exactly what it was that he himself was going to do. So he said to Philip, send them away into the wilderness. Or, Sorry, he said to Philip, you find some place where we can buy bread for these to eat. Now, Philip runs the numbers. Philip runs the numbers. And in running the numbers, Philip failed the test. Do you find it discouraging or disappointing or at least disconcerting that the Lord Jesus tested Philip, tested him. That word test is used in the New Testament in a negative way and in a positive way. Here it's used in a positive way. It's used negatively to mean to tempt somebody, to put a stumbling block or something before somebody so that they would sin. Like James 1.13 where it says God does not tempt any man with evil. God does not put evil in front of us to lure us into evil. So it's used in that sense, but it's also used in a positive sense of testing somebody in order to prove something. Now the Lord tests us. He tests you and he tests me. He allows afflictions into our life. He allows suffering into our lives. He allows trials into our life, Not so in order to test us, but not so that the Lord may find out what is in our hearts, but so that you and I may find out what is in our hearts. That's the purpose of Christian testing. It's not to reveal something to the Lord that he doesn't know about us. It is to reveal something to us that we previously did not know about ourselves. And that is what a test does, and that is the sense in which Jesus is testing Philip. He is putting before Philip a proposition, and he is allowing this situation to unfold in order to show to Philip and the disciples where their faith is weak and where their understanding is weak. Trials and tests do two things. They either show us the strength of our faith, or they show us a weakness in our faith, or a weakness in our understanding that we need to correct. So that if something happens where you face a trial, and affliction, or suffering, or a test, or something that comes upon you, and you respond in such a way that after a little bit you look at yourself and you say, where did that come from, that response? Ten years ago, I would have grabbed a stick and beat this guy to death for suggesting something like this, and here I am responding with mercy and meekness and grace and loving kindness. How did that happen? Something has changed in me. Tests come so that when we respond appropriately, we may look at it and see... Hey, I passed this test. That's a genuine faith. It proves that my faith is valuable, that my faith is real, that it's supernatural, that it is enduring, that it is God's grace, and that I'm growing. So when we pass the test, it shows us the strength of our faith. But when we fail the test, it shows us the weakness of our faith or the weakness of our understanding. I failed a test this last week. I got into a van with my wife, and we started driving down the street. And as we were leaving, she said, we need to get some gas. Now, I had no idea. I had no idea that once the needle had hit empty that she thought you could drive to Seattle and back in the van without it really running out of gas. So we pulled into the gas station to get some gas. There was a line up there. And because we were already a half an hour late for our appointment, we said, let's go to the next gas station. So we pulled out onto the highway and got exactly, exactly halfway between the two gas stations. I mean exactly within inches between the two gas stations and the van ran out of gas. No sputtering, nothing. Just run out of gas, died. We pulled off to the side of the road. And I responded like somebody who believes in the sovereignty and the providence of God in every last detail of life. (laughs) No, friends, I did not. I was upset because we were late. I was angry or frustrated about the situation. How could you drive from here to Spokane and back four times on an empty tank of gas and not think that eventually we're going to run out of gas? You could have told me how many days ago it was that it hit E, and I may have just waited there and pushed it up to the thing. All of that, I got angry frustrated. On the way, I had to walk back to a gas station. made us a whole hour late. And on the way back to the gas station, I realized I just failed that test. I responded not like somebody who believes in the sovereignty and the providence of God in all of life's situations and circumstances. But I responded like somebody who thought I was running my own universe. And somebody had stepped in and sidelined the whole operation. Major, epic fail. The test. And then I had to repent and apologize to my wife and apologize to my son whom I had called on the phone and asked him to come over and bring a gas can to me because of my shortness of temper and all that. And on the way back to the gas station, on that long walk, all the way back to the gas station, I realized, Lord, that is where I failed. I fail in this area that I believe this about my theology, but when it hits the road down here, I fail to respond in a way that is in keeping with what I know the Bible says. So that test, that trial, and I know that that is small compared to those of you who are struggling with cancer or have a spouse who's struggling with cancer or dealing with financial situations. That is a small test or a trial. Listen, I failed the small one. I failed the small one. The purpose of trials is to show us where our faith is strong and to show us where our faith is weak. Philip gets to see where his faith is weak, and so he runs the numbers. And he says 200 denarii worth of food is not sufficient to feed all these, even to give all of them a little. Even if we just break off a little piece of bread and give everyone a little so that they just have a bite or two, we're looking at 200 denarii worth of food. And if we want to add another course to this meal, say meat, fish for instance, then we can't even begin to calculate the amount of money it's going to take to feed over 5,000 people. So he runs the numbers, into Philip, it looks, from every human vantage point, impossible. It's impossible. We can't do this. We can't feed them, even if we had 200 denarii. How much is 200 denarii? One denarii was a full day's wage for your average worker. One denarii. So this is eight months' wages. If we have eight months' wages, we cannot feed these people, even to give all of them a little. And Philip didn't even have to go to Judas and ask Judas how much money was in the money bag to know that not only did they not have the provision to buy food for all of these people. They didn't even have a place to buy food for all of these people. So here is where Philip failed. Listen, Philip didn't fail because he failed to believe that Jesus was capable of meeting this need. This is where I think most of us go astray when we read the passage. We think Philip's failure was that Philip failed to believe Jesus had the power to do something miraculous. I don't believe Philip didn't believe that Jesus had the power. I believe that Philip believed with all of his heart that Jesus had the power. Where Philip failed was he failed to see how the power that he knew Jesus had was able to meet the need that was pressing at the moment. For instance, if somebody at this very moment, between verse 6 and 7, had walked up to Jesus and said, Jesus, we have a man here who is crippled. What can you do? And if Jesus had turned to Philip and said, Philip, where can we go to buy medicine and a doctor to treat this man? What do you think Philip would have said? Philip would have said, Lord, you have been healing people all day long. We have seen the signs. You healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. You healed the nobleman's son. These people have been coming to you, have been teaching them and healing them by the dozens or even by the hundreds. You have healed terminal illnesses. You have made the lame walk. You've made the blind see. You've made the deaf to hear. You have cast out demons. You've been doing all of this all day long. And now it's late. Where are we going to go to get a doctor? We don't need a doctor. Jesus, just heal this man. You have the power to do that. But when a different trial comes up, Philip, let's get food for this multitude. We can't do that. We got 200 denarii worth of food, uh, money, and that would never feed all these people. If we gave, a, it starts running the numbers. What did Philip fail to do? He failed to see how the power of Christ, which he had seen and he knew and he believed in his mind and in his heart and he was convinced of, was able to be applied to this situation. That was it. If somebody had presented Jesus with a cripple, Philip would have never for a moment doubted that Jesus was able to heal him. But presented with the need to provide food for all of those people, Philip simply failed to believe that Jesus, failed to see how what he knew about Jesus applied to this situation. This is where I say that you and I are more like the disciples than we care to admit. Have you ever been in an absolutely overwhelming situation where you say, I don't know if I can go through this, I don't know if I can do this. And if somebody can walk up to you and describe an, an even less overwhelming or an even more overwhelming situation, you say, look, God is sovereign. You believe this. He has grace for you. He has power. He can do this. He can, he can cure that. And then you look at your own situation and you say, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. It's exactly what Philip was doing. Now, does this mean that Jesus is always going to deliver us from our trials? We're always going to heal our sick sicknesses. We're always going to heal our sick loved ones. We're always going to make our life better. No. But sometimes we have to come to the point where we say, I believe that Jesus is able to do this. Now, I am in this situation, and since I believe that he is able to do this, I believe that he is able to heal me. But do I believe that he is able to give me the grace to go through this, even if he chooses not to heal me? I believe that Jesus is able to provide everything I need. But do I also believe that he is able to give me the grace to go without and to live with contentment? I believe that Jesus is able to give me exactly what I want that would fulfill me and satisfy me, but do I believe that he is also at the same time able in not giving me what would satisfy me to help me to find satisfaction in him? See the difference? What did Philip fail to do? It's not that he failed to believe Jesus was powerful it's that Philip failed to realize how the powerfulness of Christ and his majesty would affect the situation that he was in. That's where he failed. That was what the test proved. The disciples had been seeing the miracles. They believed he had the power. But when confronted with the need, they failed to see how that power would answer that situation. They should have seen that, but they didn't. And so they failed the test. Jesus was able to meet the need, but the very first step before you see the provision is recognizing the need. Philip recognized the need, but he was looking somewhere else for a source sufficient to meet his need. That's where we fail, just like the disciples. So we looked at the place and the people and the problem. And now we get to look at the provision. What is it that Jesus does, and what does that provision tell us about who he is and what he is able to do for us? And we'll look at that next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful that... um that you have shown us such grace and such power. And we have believed upon you by your grace and by the calling of your Spirit and none of our own works and none of our own deeds, but by your grace and your grace alone. We have trusted that Christ is able to save to the uttermost all those who come uh, come to you by faith in him and that he is able to atone for our sins and that he is able to deliver us from the wrath to come. We have trusted him for our daily provision. We believe in our heart of hearts with our mind and with our souls, because we have entrusted ourselves to him, we believe that he is able to grant and to give and to do anything that is necessary for our good. Help us constantly to entrust ourselves then in every situation to what your word says and what we know Christ is able to do. May we not fail the test that you present before us, but give us grace, O God, to strengthen and to shore up the areas of our life where we where we do fail and where we do fall short. And may we apply our theology of Christ and of you and your majesty to every area of life that we might honor and glorify you. Thank you for your grace and kindness to us again. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org.